on those headphones. It's time for Naughty Talk with Sunny Lee Maine. Welcome to Naughty Talk with Sunny Lee Maine, the podcast that explores all things kinky in a sexy and inclusive way. This show is intended for mature audiences aged 18 and up, and some listeners may find it disturbing. We believe in risk-aware consensual kink here on the show, so if you do try things mentioned on the show at home, know that neither the show nor the cast are responsible for any accidents, injuries, legal or property damages that may occur while getting your kink on. Welcome to Naughty Talk Season 2, Episode 6. I am Sunny, she, her, and I am here with my partner, VD Mac. He, him, and we're going to get a little bit personal today. How are you today, Daddy? I am quite well, baby girl. How are you? I'm doing okay. This is a little bit of a, an emotional topic, but I think it's it's really important for us to go here because I feel like it might be helpful for a lot of people. Yeah, it's definitely going to be a, a heavy one. All right. So we'll go ahead and, and just kind of dive in. And I'll start by saying that the past year and a half has been a period of some really big challenges for our family. And we've had some heavy lifting to do in the health department and also in some adjustments with our living situation. And I think it's important for people to remember that we're people, human beings with real vanilla lives. And yes, we also do have a 24-7 DDLG dynamic and we're part of a poly family and we're very kinky. But today we're going to share a little bit about our story because I think the topic of dealing with real life crisis in the context of a very deep and fixed dynamic is a really important one. So I think we should kind of start by describing our dynamic in detail a little bit and just kind of, I know we've touched on it, but really dig into that a little bit so that folks can get a sense of what our dynamic is really like. Do you want to do that? Uh, Sure. I'll at least uh, go through the basics and you can add color and flavor as you want. But uh, we do have a 24-7 dynamic. Uh, I am... The Dom, uh, specifically Daddy Dom, to Sunny, who is my uh, LG, part of the the DDLG. Uh, in addition to that, since we're both primal, we have you know our dynamic is kind of a shared one between uh, the DDLG and the primal side, where we act as uh, primal mates. Which means, you know, technically I have to prove to Sonny uh, when we get to the primal side that I'm still bigger and stronger than she is uh, in order to, you know, conquer her, for lack of a better term. Uh, and that's that's pretty much our dynamic uh, in a nutshell. But, uh, you know, like any dynamic, there are, are flavors and twists and turns that uh, are unique to, to our particular relationship as well. Yeah, I think that's a really good description. And we've touched on it a little bit. Sometimes people ask us, how can you both be doms and be in dynamic together? How does that work? And it works for us because 
I am very dominant even when I am in little space. And so the, the daddy component, you know, it makes Mac really sort of like a mentor and it's a, a little bit more of a gentle type of dominance and it's not service-based, it's care-based. And so that's something that really helps us. But the other piece is, again, even when I'm in little space, so there's that sort of differential um but the the primal piece really helps because psychologically i have a hard time finding anything resembling subspace but i can sort of get to that release when the dominance is physical so even if we're super stubborn and butting heads daddy has the ability to physically manage me and to basically be like okay um you know, whatever it is. I want you to go take a shower and get ready for bed. And I'm like, no, I'm watching a movie. He can literally toss me over his shoulder and make that happen. So he's able to physically assert dominance. And I, I think that that is something that will kind of be important to what we are talking about, that a lot of it isn't necessarily like a psychological dominance, but more of like a physically enforced one. Would you say that's accurate? Uh, yeah, there have definitely been a few times where I've had to toss you over a shoulder and carry you, <laughs> carry you off to do certain, uh, tasks. Uh, but, you know, generally after, you know, you generally don't challenge me a whole lot in that regard, uh, at least now, but no, uh, yeah, I, don't. I would say that's accurate. <laughs> that's true. Now, now it's just the eye roll and, you know, tiny little bratty face that you do, but... Uh, it's, it's not too bad. And I like because it. Because so. it's been established that you can. <laughs> so, like, right. I know what happens when I draw a line in the sand. And, and that is really the, the primal piece. But the other piece is that I think that it, our dynamic is very much like, kind of like bratty cub or pup and alpha predator. So we're both predators and we're both very dominant, but I definitely defer to you in the life experience department. So I, I think that those two things are, are sort of in combination what makes it work for us. And now that that's established, it's definitely an easier sort of thing. But anyway, so I want to kind of approach our topic from two perspectives today. First, the impact of some of our recent struggles on our kink dynamic and individual relationship, and then some considerations for the impact on our family, which is a poly family as a whole. And so to give folks a little bit of background, a little bit about our story, about a year and a half ago in, I think, May 2021, you were actually diagnosed with cancer. And I get emotional just thinking about this time, but your first doctor actually told you that there really wasn't any hope. And that was the sort of initial crisis. And in my mind, there wasn't any hesitation about wanting to take on more of a caregiver and a supportive role to help you in any way that I could. And I wasn't ready to give up hope on the basis of one medical opinion that you'll say this is snotty, but it turned out to be true, came from like a rural hospital that didn't have a specialty in cancer treatment or any access to cutting edge research. And so I really pushed hard against you to get a second opinion, which you thankfully, you know, you eventually did. And there was a lot involved, which we'll get to, but 
I think that the situation initially with having that sort of challenge to our dynamic with you being the caregiver and me being the little, I think it was probably harder on your side and so hard, in fact, that, you know, those first two weeks, you (laughs) actually expressed that you felt so strongly that you did not want me to have to take care of you, that you thought it would be better to go our separate ways so that you could like pass away by yourself and not put me through that. And I'm stubborn AF. (laughs) And I told you that I was not going to leave your side and that you were going to have to try harder than um, being told you were dying to get rid of me. And that you know, if I only got to have a little bit more time with you, I didn't want to miss a minute of that regardless of what was happening. Um, But also that I I wasn't ready to give up hope. And I want to say it took us about two weeks of back and forth about this to decide Mm -hmm. that it was going to be a path that we would walk together, maybe even a little bit longer than that, maybe closer to a month. Um, um, I seem to recall it being much shorter than that. <laughs> I don't know. It felt like an eternity with that hanging in the balance and with me feeling like each minute that we were apart was a minute that I was missing out on time with you. So it's possible that like the trauma of the situation has made it seem much longer lasting, but maybe it was only a couple of weeks. Um, but yeah, I mean, the process was pretty emotionally harrowing. And do you want to just talk a little bit about your headspace from your side of things, like getting the news and dynamic and, you know, where you were at at that moment? Sure. So, you know, first, uh, just to give some a little bit of background here, uh, I am 47. I was 46 when I was diagnosed in May of 2021. And I was diagnosed with stage four prostate cancer that had already metastasized into uh, my hips, so my pelvis, uh, my bladder, and some of the other surrounding tissue. Your spine. Yes, my spine. You're right. And um, one lymph node, which, of course, if you know anything about basic biology, you know that pretty much once it's metastasized that far, the chances of survival, particularly if it's already spread to one lymph node because it will spread to them all very rapidly, uh, the prognosis was very poor at the time. And, you know, Sonny chooses to describe hospitals in Maine as being uh, rural. um, Yeah, because they almost fucking killed you by telling you there was no hope. Sorry. (laughs) Um, So, and and honestly, with uh, traditional Western medicines that, that are well established, there was very little hope. But uh, as Sonny alluded to, um, as as we progressed through this, and of course, I'm sitting there just thinking to myself, well, you know, my grandfather's passed away from cancer. My grandmother's pa- from the other side. My grandmother's passed away from cancer. Uh, my uncle had prostate cancer, so I'm I'm pretty much fucked. There's just there's just no way around it. I'm I'm pretty much fucked. And 
you know, at that point you start switching your mind from, you know, I have 30 plus years left to live to, I might not make it to my birthday, which was five months away. So in your mind, you start kind of having to switch the way you think from, you know, I have 30 plus years left of my life to, I might not make it to my next birthday in five months. And, uh, sorry, his, his son, I said, it's going to be emotional. So I'm, you probably can hear the emotion in my voice. Take your time. Um, so I didn't, me being me and the way I think and the way I was raised, I didn't want to burden anyone with having to be with someone who is going to progressively go downhill. So the day I told Sonny was about a week or so after I found out. And uh, I tried to break up with her, tried to end our relationship. And uh, (laughs) she, being nearly as stubborn as I am, uh, fought me on it, tooth and nail, and refused to give up on me and refused to give up on our relationship. And it was her pushing me to get a second, a third, a fourth, a fifth opinion. I think we're. I think I was up to fourth actually. Uh, I ended up finding an experimental program out of Johns Hopkins University down in um, Baltimore, and so I went down there uh, several times. Uh, fortunately, most of my treatments could be done at other hospitals, so I didn't have to have my treatments down there. I just had to see the oncologist down there. And it still took, I don't know, Sonny, you help me out here. I, I think it took until at least July, the end of July, before I started going, there might be some hope here. It, it definitely took several months anyway. It took a while, and... I mean, there were other factors involved, like, you know, um, one, something we didn't touch on. You had gone through this on the other side with your spouse who passed away from cancer. I feel like that's a big part of this. And you were expressing to me at the time that you knew sort of what it was like to care for and watch a partner with end-stage cancer pass away. And so there was that. But then on the other side of things, you know, my vanilla profession being, I'll just say this very generally in the healthcare field, suffice to say, um, my vanilla profession gave me a very clear picture of exactly what that would look like, what all the different treatment options would look like, what recovery would look like, not to mention having also cared for family members myself, you know, who had had cancer in the past. You know, I had witnessed several family members dying from cancer when I was a child even, but I really had no 
illusions. Um, I knew what it would really look like. And so both of us had these very clear images in our mind. And, you know, in my head, I was like, I, I know I can do this. I can walk this path with you. And in your mind, I feel like you were kind of thinking, I don't want you to have to. But yeah, I mean, do you want to say a little bit more about what that was like for you on the other side of things? Sure. Um, so, you know, my experience was was very horrifying. My uh, wife was diagnosed with breast cancer in September after having uh, a, a clear clear self-examination, you know, six months earlier to, hey, I have a small lump to, hey, this lump is getting bigger. I need to get it checked out. Uh, And she was diagnosed officially in September. And she passed away three days after Christmas uh, that same year. So uh, three and a half, uh, approximately three and a half months, she went from being you know, healthy, no signs of, of cancer, being a very active individual, eating healthy, doing all the right things to going from 140 pounds to 87 in three months. So I, and I knew what a burden it can be on someone to care for somebody who's going through a terminal illness. It's a massive emotional and mental burden on any individual who, uh, you know, loses a a loved one or watches a a loved one lose their battle with a disease like that. And uh, I was trying to spare Sonny that, that grief because I knew it firsthand. And I wasn't having it. <laughs> it was just like, no, like, you know, healthy or sick, that's what I signed up for. And, you know, I I definitely pushed you to get a second opinion and a third, you know, basically. <laughs> I know and you're going to tease me about this, but I was like at a real hospital with cancer, <laughs> like innovations. Um you know, because I just, I was familiar with how much of a difference that can make. But I think that there were a lot of emotional parallels and that you had a physical in January where they did blood work that would show signs of this type of cancer. And then three months later, you just got violently ill and it turned out you had COVID and the flu at the same time. And we had been separated for, you know, this was in the middle of the pandemic and pre-vaccination and we had to isolate. And so you were isolating and um, you basically said, you know, I still keep testing positive And so they're telling me to keep isolating, you know, not enough was really known about the fact that people might test positive for a long time when they're not contagious and your doctor wanted to be cautious. And so, you know, it was in that process, we were actually separated for 
about two weeks because they were like, you have to quarantine for at least 14 days. And it was during that time that they also discovered, you know, they were looking at your blood work saying, why aren't you getting healthy? Why aren't you recovering? This isn't, you know, consistent with what we do know about this virus. They discovered the cancer. So really, in only three months, you went from having totally normal labs and being clear at your physical to having it have, you know, being this very aggressive type of cancer. And I'll also say that a lot of types of prostate cancer are very treatable, but this particular type is a a very rare aggressive form. You know, in three months, it was everywhere. Yeah. And, uh, you know, of course, my mindset is I've always been someone who plans for the future. Uh, I mean, my, my mom is or was she's retired now but my mom was an accountant and so when i turned 18 i started my first um you know retirement account and this is how planning for the future is is so ingrained with me and to just suddenly have to say to myself oh my god i i don't have a future it's it's like you know going from uh, 120 miles an hour to a dead stop and like 50 feet, you know, it was just very traumatic, uh, all around that plus having to deal with the terminal illness. Yeah. And, you know, so for our dynamic too, our dynamic is very natural because you, Really, I think for your whole life, even in your vanilla life, you always are the person who wants to take care of other people. You're the first person to offer to help when somebody needs it and to take on extra responsibility so that somebody else's load can be lighter. And I think that, you know, that is something that is just a core part of who you are. And then when you add on the layer of this was our established dynamic that you were the daddy and the caregiver, you know, I think it was a really difficult transition to even consider that I might be the one taking care of you, but mostly for you, because for me, you know, it was just like, this is a person that I love. And of course, I'm going to do everything you know, within my ability as a human being, using my professional skills and resources, whatever it is, like, you know, I'm going to be there. Um, So I I definitely think that that challenge to our dynamic was, it was harder for you. And, um, you know, like I said, you know, I knew that it wasn't going to be easy. We both knew it wasn't going to be pretty. We both knew what it was going to look like. We both had a, a baby puppy who was brand new. And I knew that in addition to um, taking care of you at times, I was going to be doing a lot of that. And, you know, we're we're just so matched in stubbornness. And eventually we did get there. We decided we were going to walk this path together. And, um you know, we started to get second opinions and we started down the path to treatment and we started down a path with spiritual healing. And so we started to sort of move forward and um, we found a lot of ways, I think, to, you know, to find 
moments of joy and of fun and of silliness and to sort of ease the stress of that dynamic transition. And one of them in particular was really funny. I think you were just kind of like making a joke. And I'll, I'm going to let you say what it was. But I, <laughs> I think you were just making a joke, but I just seized on it. And I was like, deal, deal, done deal. That's what's happening. Um do you want to tell everybody what it was? <laughs> so one thing you should know about Sunny is one of my, and she, even she doesn't know this, um, one of my nicknames that I use for her, like in my internal dialogue, is the jackhammer. What? Because, <laughs> because when she gets something... <laughs> In her mind, she will literally sit there and chisel away at you until she convinces you that her way of thinking is right. And to her credit, (laughs) this is where the compliment comes in. To your credit, (laughs) 99.9% of the time, you're right. It's very rare (laughs) that you're wrong. So it's a good trait, but, and, and that's really what was going on was that I had stuck my feet in the mud and said, no, it's not that I don't want you. I just don't want you around me. I don't want to have a relationship with you because I'm dying and I don't want to have to see that in your face every time you look at me. And she really started this, um, (laughs) she started up her little jackhammer on me. And, uh, you know, kept chiseling away and chiseling away and chiseling away until literally by the end of the first day after I had broken the news to her, I was like, okay, let me think about it. And then I think it was like the next day. I'm like, okay, if you really want to go through this with me, then, you know, we'll go through it together. And it was probably, I don't know, probably two weeks, three weeks later, something like that. Uh, I made the joke that if she was going to have to take care of me, that she ought to wear a naughty nurse outfit. And uh, so sure enough, like a few days later, she had it. <laughs> She's like, okay, I have it. I made it a surprise for your first yeah, treatment you weekend. Did. And yeah. Um, yeah. And to be fair, you know, I mean, I am relentless when I feel like something is really important. So I don't want to give the idea that our relationship is generally conf- confrontational or, oh, no, no it's not. you know, I'm like that when like this was a life or death circumstance. And when I feel like deeply in my soul, <laughs> that I have this conviction that this is the path. And like, I, I literally, I knew that your life hung in the balance and I just, I don't know. I had this feeling like I knew that if we tackled it together, if we got another opinion, if we did these things, I knew that there was at least hope, you know, and I I told you, like, I was prepared. The jackhammering, as you want to call it, was not like you have to get treatment. It was, let's at least get a realistic assessment of the situation and find out what our options were. And then whatever path you decide to walk, whether it's that, you know, this was accurate and there's no hope and, you know, we're going to be basically walking a path of um, passing away with dignity or whether you decide you want to get treatment, I want to be there with you. 
So, you know, I, I had to be very clear that whatever you decided, I would abide by it. Like as long as you were operating with all of the information, whatever your decision was, I would support you in it. And yeah, I mean, (laughs) so I, you know, that, that naughty nurse outfit, I think it was an important moment because we realized that we had to find ways to help ourselves get over the emotional hurdles that we were facing. And, you know, we had to find ways to find joy and laughter and um, to keep living while we went through this. And that was sort of one of the really early ones. And so, yeah, I put on that naughty nurse outfit and I, I actually put it on, I think the night before your treatment so that we could have like a really fun, you know, night where you were distracted and not focusing on what was coming the next day. I'm pretty sure that's how it went down. And I think you had me put it back on when you got back from your, <laughs> your treatment. I'm pretty sure I wore it at least twice that weekend. And you um, did. Yeah. And so for me, you know, it was a way to preserve some of the sexiness that had been part of our dynamic. And I just, I really wanted to find ways to remind you that I still found you attractive and bring some fun into the situation. And I still have that little outfit. But yeah, I mean, we were facing the possibility that the treatment might result in some physical loss of sexual function, radiation and surgery do really unpleasant things to bodies. Chemo too, you didn't end up having chemo or surgery. But you know, those were things that we were discussing and we knew at least radiation was going to be on the table. I had surgery. It was just day surgery to insert the radioactive pellets. Right. You did have some surgery, but like you didn't, in the end, you did not have to have your prostate removed. But at the time, we thought that that was a possibility. And So, you know, we are extremely fortunate that in the end, the worst physical harm didn't happen, but like that surgery was scheduled and it was canceled at the last minute because you were responding so well to the other treatments. So for months we were preparing for that surgery. Like we booked a place to stay near Johns Hopkins for a week and then for a month for the recovery, like we were really preparing for that. And so, you know, it was more than a real possibility. It was the the acting plan for a period of time. And talking about the possibility that if you did have the surgery, you might need to take treatment to suppress your testosterone and other things. And, mm-hmm. you know, we found a lot of ways to cope with that. And one of those things was fucking like bunnies while we could <laughs> and while you felt well enough. And then we started down this path of like trying to do things that were on your sexual bucket list. And uh, there was like one thing in particular. Do you want to talk about that? (laughs) Sure. So uh, one of the things that I said, I I, honestly, I don't even remember how it came up, but it was very early in our relationship. And it was, it was before uh, I had gotten my diagnosis. And uh, one of the things that I had never experienced uh, sexually was uh, an orgasm by oral, which is, uh, from my understanding, is actually not that uh, uncommon for uh, dominant men. Um, you know, face fucking, no problem, but actually, like, sitting back and being comfortable enough for someone else to to you basically to to use my body and, and bring me pleasure 
was not something that I had really ever been comfortable with. Yeah, you were like, I don't like giving up control enough. I can't give up control enough to enjoy that act. And so it wasn't really something that we did because you came right out of the gate with that. Yeah. (laughs) Yep. And um, I don't have those qualms on the other side of things. I love receiving oral, whether I'm dominant or not, but I was like, which is is good considering, (laughs) you know, oral uh, fixation is one of my fetishes. Yeah. but yeah. uh yeah and and so Sunny basically kind of made it like her own personal quest uh to make sure that that happened and she did a wonderful job too. It took some trial and error but um yeah, it took some <laughs> some experimentation um but it's kind of funny cuz that is like that is not my own personal favorite act to give either for Mm. trauma-based reasons. And I'm not going to get into all of that, but you know, for all of the previously mentioned reasons that had really not been our thing. And it was really funny because with all the the trauma-based reasons, I don't normally enjoy that particular act it was something in my own mind that I was just determined. Like I wanted to (laughs) give you that, like, I don't know. I was like a dog with a bone. I was like, I have to do this. I I would not let it go. Cause I was like, you know what, if it's on your bucket list, it has to happen while it's a possibility. And so that was really fun. Like kind of exploring all the different (laughs) possibilities that go along with that. And I just, I remember this moment of like, fuck yes, like success. (laughs) Like I got a merit badge or something when it finally happened. (laughs) And the biggest smile I've ever seen on your face. Yeah. I was like, you know, well, you know how I am when I'm like determined to reach a goal and I, and I yes. get there. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, you know, that was one thing. Um, there was the naughty nurse kind of dynamic thing mm-hmm. that we worked in there. Which was unbelievably hot. <laughs> yeah. I even put on fishnets cause I know you have a thing for that. And, um, mm-hmm. We had a disaster episode. We've talked about it on the show before and (laughs) we didn't go into all the details, but part of like us attempting to make that um, mold of your (laughs) cock for a dildo and do one of those kits and we we got it stuck on and it was like a whole, (laughs) it was hilarious and a really funny moment. Um, But part of it was like making a dildo that was like your erect cock. I think that was sort of in the mix with, you know, worried about. Um, what might change for us. Um, But, you know, so we had like this frenzy where we wanted to, like every moment you were feeling healthy enough, we wanted to basically, uh, we wanted to fuck like you were dying, (laughs) you know? Um, that That is what we were doing. But also, as we started to have some hope that you could survive it and that the cancer could potentially be in remission, but with potentially a loss of function, there was also, I feel like this really determined shift to like, I, I just wanted to like remind you, like it was important to me that you knew that even if that happened, you know, it wasn't going to make me feel like you were any less sexy or any less dominant or, you know, 
any less of a person. And also just a reminder that there are so many different ways to fuck and to have sex and to have physical intimacy and having one body part out of commission. Like it's really not the end of your sex life. And so, you know, we started to explore some ways that we could be physically intimate that didn't necessarily involve that part of your body. Even though things were still working at the time, we started to sort of emotionally prepare and start to explore because Mm -hmm. I wanted to have options before frustration was on the table that we knew would work. And so one of the things that we sort of did a little bit more of was hypnosis. And we had dabbled in it a little bit, mostly when I introduced you to hypnosis for the first time, because I wanted you to experience what it felt like to be a subject so that you could then trans me and we could do our dolly play that we're known for. And um, But I feel like we really kind of circled back to this concept of us playing with me as the hypnotist and giving you hypnotic orgasms because I wanted us to to have the confidence that that was possible and doable and fun and sexy and could give you sexual satisfaction before we even knew what the final outcome of the treatment was going to be. And um, it's one of those reasons that I always tell people being a hypnotist is not synonymous with being a dominant or a top and it you can be on either side of the slash and be the hypnotist or the subject and being a hypnotist i mean it can be an act of service or submission too it does not have to change your dynamic and so you know or it could just be for sexy fun times and there could be no dynamic involved at all so one particular situation that comes to mind is the bubbles thing Mm-hmm. That was after we knew you were sick and when we were starting to re-explore it. Do you want to tell that story? Uh, actually, uh, to be honest with you, I would rather hear your perspective of it. Um, because I know that inside you is... Y- y- you take glee in um, topping me from time to time. <laughs> So, um, I, I see that little giggle right there. That's all I needed. Um, because I, I think the story is going to be richer coming from your perspective than from mine. Oh, all right. But then you have to say what it was like for you, at least at the end deal. Okay. So, I mean, you're right. I mean, I am a dominant and a top, so, you know, like the other day you were exhausted and, I really (laughs) wanted some D and I was like, I'm going to get on top and just ride you (laughs) because you're too tired to function, but I need this. And you were pretty happy. And I had a really fun time kind of being on top. And yes, I had thoughts in my mind about like reaching down and choking you a little bit. And like, I didn't do that. (laughs) Um, But yeah, you know, I was enjoying my moment on top and all of that is true. However, I think that actually, in that particular situation, that's not really where my head was at. My head was really at, I just want this to work. I want us to have this in our toolbox. Like, I really just want it to be pleasurable for him. Because if we can do hypnotic orgasms, and he can experience those in in an intense way, 
it will take some of the pressure off because we'll know that regardless of the outcome of the surgery, he can still experience an orgasm. And so definitely that's where my head was at more so than just enjoying the the topping for topping's sake. But yeah, so, you know, I was prepping for this bubbles class that I, I taught with Panda at a hypno convention and I had a bubble machine and I love bubbles for hypnosis. And so this was actually a, a twofold kind of new thing because we hadn't done hypnosis with daddy as the bottom for a really long time, but also he had been having a hard time relaxing and he was having a lot of symptoms from his treatment. And so there was actually a little bit of cannabis involved. And normally he doesn't use any substances at all. But it was something that we did experiment with a little bit because, um, you know, of the cancer treatment and the situation and he was having a tough time and I just really wanted him to be able to relax and be pain free. And so I think that that made your mind a little squishier with the hypnosis. And um, side note, there are risks that come along with doing hypnosis and weed at the same time. So I'm not outright encouraging that, especially if you're new, but Anyway, it was kind of a a special situation. And yeah, so we got you relaxed and we were like laying on the floor and watching the bubbles come out of the bubble machine. And I was like, you know, giving suggestions about focusing on the colors and the way the light was like reflecting off the bubbles and using the bubbles for an induction. And then um, we did this really fun scene where I was having like the bubbles be a kinesthetic trigger in the hypnosis so that when the bubbles touched your skin, things would happen and different types of sensations. And we played with that for a little bit. And then I think I had the bubbles actually become a trigger for orgasms. And so, you know, we built Mm -hmm. arousal and we worked up to it and we did that. And then I think we actually ended up having at the end, like physical sex with the hypnosis in the mix. And then, yeah, it was just a really fun, awesome experience. And then you got to take control back because you were like, my turn. And then you fucked up my brain and it was awesome. Yeah, uh, it, it it was. Um, I should probably, before I get into how, you know, that, that scene, you, my responses and my reactions to it, I should probably give the caveat that I'm somebody who's very hard to drop even when consciously I want to, uh, it, my subconscious is like, no, you must have control. Uh, so uh, it's very hard. Uh, Sunny does a great job at it. And, uh, you know, this was no different. Like she said, uh, the weed made it, made my brain a little squishier. And I should also add that in, in both of our states, Marijuana is a legal recreational drug. So just for those of you who live in states that that's not the case, we weren't doing anything that was illegal within our state. And also that this was a a very light scene in terms of like there was nothing edge play about it. Like there was nothing, you know, it was just really like fun and orgasm. There was Mm -hmm. nothing edgy or. It was very playful. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just to emphasize that there are risks involved with any kind of kink or play hypnosis or physical, if, you know, whether there's alcohol or anything else involved. Um, I just want to say that on the record. 
get the get the lawyer hat out. Well, it, not just the lawyer. You know, I, I say at the beginning of the show, like do things at your own risk. But right, sometimes hypnosis and other scenes they do not go well when there are substances involved, and so um, this was a, a very little bit. You know, it was like a couple of puffs to help you relax and um, and to feel better from your cancer treatment. And that enabled us to be in a space where we could enjoy ourselves for a little while. And mm-hmm. I definitely don't regret it, but um, I don't want to also create the message that I'm saying that it's safe to, <laughs> to do kink while impaired either. <laughs> right. Sure. Um, but it was, it was a, a very interesting scene. Uh, I had had not played with bubbles uh, since I was a kid. So being able to, you know, lay on the floor and, you know, look up and watch the bubbles, um, you know, really distracted my mind very well, which of course is something you, you need. I, you know, you need that conscious mind to be distracted uh, for a good induction and uh, it it was very well done. Uh, Sonny did a great job, and uh, the and then of course as soon as it turned so that the bubbles were creating different sensations, my subconscious was like, "Uh oh, <laughs> he let a sadist <laughs> create sensations with bubbles." But she was nice to me. Uh, I was, was a good. It was girl. a very good. Yeah, you were. You were. You were a very good girl. And uh, you maybe did a little biting. I think I, we had some little primal yes, bites in there. Yeah, but, you but those that. are fine, you know. <laughs> and um, you know, we have we have those in physical sex, so that's no different. Um, right. But uh, yeah, and I think the the best part for me, the the takeaway for me, was the fact that it worked and it worked very well for me. So it kind of solved the mystery of, okay, if they whack off a bunch of uh, stuff inside that, that, you know, helps me get erect and helps me play, then at least we have a solution, which was the important thing um, for, for me. Uh, And I'm sure it was for Sonny as well, because I can't imagine that, you know, there are that many people out there who want to, take pleasure from somebody and not make sure that the pleasure is returned. Yeah. And I think that it was a little bit of a sigh of relief for both of us. And I, I mean, I knew we would find ways to be intimate, but I, I had built up in my mind that this was going to be a really important piece because it wasn't just play because I, I didn't want to only explore ways that might leave you feeling like you had had pleasure, but not release. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, and for anybody who's struggling with any kind of physical issue with orgasm, I definitely recommend experimenting with hypnosis. But I also just think it was a testament to the trust that was shared between us because it was different for our regular dynamic and it required you to be relaxed and to give me a little bit of control, which was something that you know, is, is very different. And I think if we didn't have that deep level of trust and understanding, and if we didn't both 
have a degree of flexibility about us to adapt to difficult situations, you know, we might not have explored some of those things. And so, you know, I, I think it was just a testament to the strength of our relationship that we were able to explore other types of intimacy that were different from what we usually did. And, um, just give ourselves the the space and the the grace to do something a little bit different and outside of the box. And um, yeah, I mean, it definitely gave me a lot of peace. It was this really important moment I felt like on our journey where, you know, we had tried a bunch of stuff, but I, I felt like something clicked and I was like, okay, like this is going to be something that's going to work for us. And so now we can really, you know, not that we weren't already super focused on your treatment and, and having you survive. And, but I feel like it, it was a little release from that, that worry. And, you know, a lot of things that we did, a lot of choices we made were about, you know, living in the moment. And when we didn't know if you were going to make it and, you know, finding joy and enjoyment in that time that we thought you had left and then pivoting to, finding ways to continue to be intimate regardless of the outcome during your treatment. So, I mean, we were on a a bucket list kind of kick in general. I think, you know, there were lots of things that you told me that you had not experienced in your life or in your childhood. And so I really, and I mean, I still do because it was still, even with you now being in remission, you know, we know that every day is a gift and, So, you know, that's a part of our life still, but anytime I became aware of an experience in your life that you had not had, and I thought that I could bring to you in a small way, even something silly, like you had never eaten, I think it was jelly beans, Um, (laughs) you know, and I, I ordered a pack. It just, you know, little things. And one of the really big ones, you touched on it earlier, was actually your birthday because you had shared with me that you didn't really do any kind of birthday celebrations growing up as a child because that wasn't something that was possible for your family. And then as an adult, you just had been in the habit of this isn't something that we celebrate. And I really felt like your birthday was a huge thing last year because we didn't think you were going to see it and you had never had a birthday celebration. And so you let me go all out and I started planning it in advance. Months in advance. (laughs) Months in advance, but because I wanted us to one, have something to look forward to, you know, that was a fun and like happy goal that wasn't necessarily like the ultimate goal, but I wanted to give us something to look forward to that was, you know, only a few months away. And I was like, you know what, if we have this birthday to celebrate, it is such a gift. We need to go all out. I I think actually, if I remember correctly, you started planning for my birthday before we even found out that I had cancer. It was, it was, it was quite a while at least regardless. There were, there was something, I can't remember exactly how it went down. I mean, I think, I mean, I'm always sort of like bucket list minded, like, you know, so I think that when you first told me that you had never had a birthday celebration, I said like, let's do something really special for your birthday. And then that idea was not like fully formed, but then you got sick and I was like, you know, I had that focus. Like if we get to this birthday, we're going to celebrate the shit out of it. And we did. 
and we did. <laughs> and it was a really good time. It was, mm-hmm. it was, it was really nice. So, I mean, we've kind of touched on sort of how we coped with, you know, the changes to our dynamic a little bit and the, the possibility of, you know, the way we physically had sex changing. But one of the things that we haven't really talked about yet is, you know, the effect that the situation had on our family life and starting with the fact that we are polyamorous and, you know, we, we had a big transition because again, I think this was easier for me and, and my other partner because we both loved you already and we just wanted to do anything that we could to help, but it came back into play that you really didn't want to be a burden But, you know, when you thought you were going to die, you made a lot of really fast decisions because you felt like you had to and you sold your home that was on the grid and left yourself with just the cabin, which is extremely remote and not somewhere that you can access treatment from. And then we decided to go down the treatment path. And so that, you know, it triggered a a series of events where we we're all going to be sleeping under one roof on a really regular basis. And that was something that was really new for my dynamic with my other partner. I typically in the past before you had dated other people who could host or like we would do hotel rooms and I had never really stayed in the home that I share with my other partner with another partner overnight while he was home because it was just sort of like our space and my relationship with you. I mean, I've always had a lot of KTP. Like I've always had partners come to the house and be present, but we just like didn't really have sleepovers here. And so that was kind of new for everybody. And like we had an extra bedroom, but it shares a wall with the bedroom I share with my other partner. So privacy here is pretty much like zero. And so yeah. I mean, there, it was a big change and I don't know, I could say more about it, but why don't you talk a little bit about what that transition was like for you? Sure. So, you know, as Sunny said, at first with the belief that, uh, I literally had months, if not weeks to live, you know, one of my priorities, since I knew I would be out of work was making sure that I had the funds available to actually, you know, support the day-to-day needs I would need. So I ended up having to sell my summer home and, uh, you know, leaving me without an ideal place to, to live and still be able to get to treatment. So it was, it kind of caught me by surprise when uh, Sunny and her vanilla partner, um, can I, is it okay if I call him M? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So when they jointly invited me to stay there when I was down uh, visiting Sunny, because I, <laughs> my grandmother used to uh, use this expression that, uh, you know, two families under one roof is never going to work. 
and I was hesitant to do it, but I think after the first few times I started to realize that it really wasn't two families under one roof, that really it was a single family and, you know, changing that perspective, I think was the most difficult thing because I, I, as Sonny alluded to, I don't, I didn't want to be a burden to anyone to the point where it was, you know, kind of stressing me out staying there because I didn't feel like I was contributing to the household. And so I, I had to, to, to go to them and I won't say beg, but I, I had to at least present a coherent argument on why I should, while I was staying there, should at least cook a few, a few nights or something that I could do that made me feel like I wasn't being a burden. Uh, and you know, my, my cooking's been decent, uh, down there. So they haven't, uh, thrown away, uh, meals that I've made at Your least. Your food so. is delicious <laughs> and you know it. You are, you are being modest, but like, you know that your food is really good. In fact, when we go out, you're like, I'm never going to find a better burger than mine. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes. Yes. Burgers I can do. Everything else comes out okay. Uh, my mac and cheese is okay, too. Your mac and cheese is like sex in my mouth. <laughs> yeah. If I ever open a restaurant, I'm going to use that as a quote. Sex in my mouth. <laughs> in parentheses, it will say mac and cheese. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it was it was a huge adjustment for me because I had been living under my own roof alone for, oh God, almost a decade. Well, just over a decade, I think. Really since your, your wife passed away. Right. Right. So, uh, it was long enough. So just being under the same roof with somebody else for more than a few nights was a little difficult. But so that's why we kind of went from, okay, I'll come down like on a, a Thursday and I'll leave on, you know, Sunday night. And it started getting to more to a, okay, I'll come down on say a Thursday and then I'll stay until the following weekend. So like a week and a half, you know, it's been a progression and I think it's, it's a good way to really learn about your partner and how she not only he or she or they uh, not only treat you, but how they treat others too. And, yeah. and I think Sonny can say the same about uh, me and, and how I treat uh, the, the folks who come and, you know, visit uh, Sonny and M as well as, you know, people come in and, and work within the house and leave. Um, so I, we're still together. So I guess that means I haven't pissed them off yet. So that's good. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, I'll say it again. I think it was easier for the two of us than you because you were very focused on not wanting to be a burden. And there was that shift because I already saw us as a single family unit. 
And so I didn't have that particular hurdle in my own mind. And, you know, I think that there were just things about how we were raised as human beings that were different, you know, and, um, you had lived in a rural community and then in a remote location. And we live in a suburb of a city and, you know, for my entire life, when I was growing up, my parents, you know, they, they struggled when I was born with relative poverty. And then my father, um, worked really hard to change his career path and did well, but he never forgot what it was like when we had nothing. And so, you know, I was very much raised in a way where I saw what things look like on both sides. And we had many people come and live with us while I was growing up, friends and family members, both my sister and I at different times had a friend who was a teenager or a young adult, like high school and college, who was in a um, an unsafe situation in their home. And my parents took them in. And in my case, it, it was a, a partner. In my sister's case, it was a friend. And we had my father's sister and my mother's brother both live with us for at least a year. And um, an extended family member who was a child whose parents were struggling, and we took that child in for a summer when we were quite young. So, you know, I was always raised in a situation where if you have a roof over your head and food to eat, you know, you're in a very lucky position and you should do what you can to help others who are struggling. And so it was never something that was weird to me to have an extra person in my home who was, in some cases, almost a stranger. So like to have a partner come and live with me, like that was just not even, it wasn't even a question in my mind. But, you know, for me, it there were several things going on because I have my relationship with you and we were dealing with your illness and we were dealing with your feelings about not wanting to be a burden and not feeling comfortable, feeling like you were somehow taking advantage. And I was like, that's ridiculous, but your feelings, you know, obviously are always valid. And the fact that you and I had started a, um, a long distance relationship and we had talked about building a small place, like a tiny house or something where we could be together. So we weren't having to do hotels so much during the periods of time when your summer home was being, um, your on-grid home was being rented out and you were at the cabin. And so we started with a, a distance relationship. And so we were actually living together in the same space, the two of us for the very first time. And then on top of that, you know, I had the balance of my relationship with M and he was so amazing and incredible and supportive as always and didn't hesitate like for a moment to say, you know, Max should just come and live with us um, while he has treatment. But there was in the balance like the fact that two of you 
the two of you always really appreciate having a lot of alone time, like really, truly alone. And that was something that wasn't happening. I love having all the attention all the time. So that was easy for me. But I recognize (laughs) that that was at times difficult for the two of you. And the fact that the dog that I have with M is a, a rescue who is amazing with people, but not good with other dogs. And we also had a dog and just things like, you know, the bedroom sharing a wall and, you know, we were trying to find space for sex and kink and privacy that wasn't uncomfortable or disturbing for my other partner. You know, so, so there was a lot going on, but I really think that, you know, because we were all good communicators and approached it from a place of, you know, love and family, we were able to make it work. And, I think it was just a testament to the strength of how each of those individual relationships was so incredibly strong that even with, you know, this big blending, it could work for us. Um, But even still now, you know, after your remission, we, we had other issues. Like we started to think about you finding a place to live that was your own space or that was going to be our, our space together. And because, you know, the mortgage companies don't, really look at disability as a steady stream of income, um, at least short term, where you were going to be transitioning back to work and you had sold your home, but we couldn't get another mortgage and we decided to build. And then <laughs> recently, lightning struck our almost finished home and it burned to the ground and we're going to have to start completely over. That's where we're at at the time of recording this. So throughout all of this, like we've had to get creative about you know, like maybe we go down and spend time with family for a weekend um, or just like rent a hotel room or we go camping to make sure that you and, you know, both have independent time with me and you, you spend time in your camper van that was actually partially built by friends of yours and you spend some time, you know, on property of family living in your camper van Um, so you have your alone time and has some alone time and we're really intentional about things like date nights where we leave the house. So we have one-on-one time. So, I mean, there are a lot of moving pieces that kind of make it work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I actually feel bad for you, to be honest with you, because, uh, unfortunately M and I have the same sense of humor and the same love of dad jokes and things like Monty <laughs> Python. So sometimes we gang up on Sunny. <laughs> and she has to listen to us both. I just put my headphones on and you two like quote movies back and forth at each other for two hours. It's like, <laughs> no, but I'm, I, nobody should feel bad for me. I'm being totally spoiled right now. I have all the attention all the time. It's actually going to be a transition for me when we kind of spread out across two households again, because I got used to having everybody here all the time. And it's going to be yet a new chapter and transition to splitting my time between two homes again. But yeah, I mean, I think that the the relationship, which was very friendly to start with between you and M, I mean, I really enjoyed watching it blossom into a really beautiful relationship just between the two of you. And it's not romantic or sexual, but it's definitely family, at least from my perspective. Yeah, I definitely would consider um, M my family. Absolutely. 
I almost feel like it's almost like a like brothers or something. I don't know. That's what it seems like from my perspective, but I don't want to put labels on your relationship with someone else. To be honest with you, I mean, I would agree with that because I have, I never had a brother and I don't think M has either. Nope. Um, so it, it makes sense um, why we would consider each other uh, more or less you know, surrogate brothers. Yeah. I definitely think that, um, polyamory is just one opportunity for chosen family and talking about transitions. I think that we should really touch on also like the impact with our, our vanilla family, like our biological family situation, because I don't think coming completely out even just to my biological family was something that we anticipated initially because um, both M and Max families are very conservative and have a tough time with that concept of with the concept of polyamory. And so we thought we would probably have to be pretty closeted because even though my family is pretty open, we didn't know if it was going to be possible to be public with one branch of family without it coming out for the other two. So, you know, when you got sick, I just, I had this moment of needing to know that there couldn't be, I had this moment of knowing there couldn't be any distractions. Like I had to be available when you needed me, if we were going to get through this. And so I knew that I wasn't going to be able to be flexible with my time with friends and family. And I knew that I was going to have to say no, you know, on a time limited basis to some things that were important. And we were also in a pandemic and I knew that I was going to have to really hardcore socially distance because you were immune compromised. And so I felt like I owed it to my family to be honest with them about why I wasn't going to be physically present at things. And also I, I felt like I needed to be honest because I needed emotional support. And I did not think that I was going to be able to spend time with my family and pretend that I was not going through, you know, like the biggest episode of, of grief or trauma um, within my, my smaller family unit that we had experienced. So I I just didn't think I was going to be myself for a while. And so I made the decision to take the risk and tell them. And um, amazingly, they handled it really well. And, you know, my sister's children now have two two uncles. And um, my family has just folded Mac right in beautifully. And any events that we have that are family events with my family, we're all welcome at. So you know, I'm glad we took the plunge. It's turned into a really beautiful thing. But I also think it was probably not something that you imagined. Like, what was that like for you? Uh, it was uh, interesting. Um, I, I think I met uh, Sonny's immediate family. Uh, I think it was like maybe three weeks after my diagnosis, uh, something like that. 
uh, via Zoom. And it was like hysterical. I was like sobbing on the phone and I was like, I have something I have to, they, you know, and they immediately were like, you know, oh my gosh, who's dying? And I'm like, well, somebody that you don't know yet. <laughs> but I want you to meet him. Um, but they, they were wonderful. Um, you know, they're, they're all wonderful people. And, uh, you know, I, I treat them just like they're a part of my family now. Um, so yeah, they're, they're great peeps and there, there was absolutely no, no trouble or no, uh, there were no, I don't even think they even asked any questions that I was like, I don't really want to answer that kind of thing. Um, you know, they were just automatically rolled me right into the family. Like I belong there. Yeah. It they was were beautiful. Like, okay. You're here. How, <laughs> how can we help? Um, yeah, I have to give them credit. They really exceeded my expectations. What was it like maybe a month later that I was actually, I think it was, yeah, I think it was about a month after I first met them that we were down there at their house for the weekend. You know, no celebrating no, um, yeah. Christmas. No, gosh, no. This was like in July because remember it was in the pool. Because I, I played in the pool for like two hours with your sister's children. So, yeah, her children tried to drown you in the pool. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, you were such a natural with them. You have so many nieces and nephews and. Um, it was so funny because, you know, my sister has raised them to be open-minded and to understand that families come in all shapes and sizes. And, you know, they have other littles in their life who have, you know, two moms or two dads and they totally just folded it in like it, it didn't even occur. And so I have to give her credit for her parenting in that department too, because, um, yeah, <laughs> um, they were like, great. Um, so then they started like running around and, um, you know, I'll say auntie Sunny, auntie Sunny has two husbands. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, you know, they're very young. Yeah. yeah. And then when I'm not there, it's where's uncle V. (laughs) Yeah. Where's uncle V. Um, and it was so funny because the, the first name, um, cause everybody calls you Mac and, mm-hmm. um, it was confusing to them. Um, and so, um, yeah, we had to come up with something else for them to call you like on the spot. And, um, I can't blame them cause I like in conversation mix your names up all the time cause they're so similar and I, yeah, um, but yeah, it's turned into a really beautiful thing. And we did eventually actually come out to your family too. And that was a little bit rockier. We're still working on it. And M's family is still blissfully unaware for the moment. So yeah. So I mean, it, there have been so many changes, but I think that something that people don't realize is that there's the trauma when there's a a terminal illness or potentially terminal illness on the table of dealing with the fact that someone may pass away, but it's also a huge emotional hurdle and a bit of a trauma to find out that that person is going to live after they've dismantled their whole life. Like to find out I've broken my life down to pieces, left my job, sold my home, um, completely broken down, the life that, you know, I built and then 
prepared to die and now I'm going to live and I have to rebuild from the ground up. And I think that is, you know, um, where family and things like therapy, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, you've talked a lot about that, that trauma and, um, yeah, I mean, on, on my side, you know, I think that there was a little bit of PTSD stuff involved for both of us. I mean, I, we both already had PTSD, but you know, I had to really lean on the the skills that I learned in therapy for managing my PTSD. When I left a relationship with domestic violence, I was thankful that I had that toolbox because, you know, I still like, I deal with anxiety and fear every time you cough or sneeze. And when you go away for a couple of days, I have this fear that bubbles up that you won't come back. And, you know, that's something that I'm still working on healing from. Yeah. But I mean, we're, we're moving forward and Mm -hmm. we're building this life. Do you want to say anything else about the trauma of that? One of the things that, uh, that I found once I got in my treatment program and, you know, the prognosis improved and kept improving is something that that's never talked about is the, the, the survival syndrome where uh, folks who somehow survive a terminal diagnosis, how they, they, switch that that gear back on to okay i'm you know preparing myself mentally to die and i'm preparing you know everything that i can because this is going to happen and then i won't say like a light switch but almost like a light switch that just stops and um anxiety and depression and ptsd and cancer survivors is actually very lot the the population's very large and it's it's surprising and i've n- never really had any trouble with depression or anxiety until i knew i was going to survive and uh, it's it's been a battle and sometimes Sonny has to take me by the figurative collars and shirt collar and, and kind of shake me and be like, dude, <clears throat> stop thinking like this because I don't, you know, for, for a few months, I didn't even recognize how depressed I was until she basically um, figuratively bitch slapped me into seeing it. <laughs> And, you know, once, once I saw it and recognized it and, you know, left my normally stubborn (laughs) self behind and said, okay, you're right. I need help. And, and started getting that help. It, you know, it, it just, it never even occurred to me that I was suffering from that. Yeah. I think that, you know, you and I had both had other trauma in our lives and we'd both in the past at other times had therapy, but mine was a lot more recent. And also, you know, there's the professional piece for me in healthcare of being trained to recognize those signs too. And so, you know, 
I really wanted to give you time and space to process and heal. But at some point, you know, I think maybe around six months after they declared that you had no evidence of disease, we were, you know, starting to build the house and you just really seemed apathetic. You know, you were like not excited about it and you wanted me to make all of the I mean, I love to design stuff, so I was excited about that. But you basically were like, whatever makes you happy, it doesn't matter to me. And you were making some really, you were looking for a new job, and you were making some really big life decisions in what seemed like a state of apathy. And I saw that you were starting to think about burning some bridges and giving up on things that had previously made you happy in such a way that it would be hard to return to them. And... um you know, like you weren't really engaging in your normal sort of spiritual pursuits. And you were thinking about taking a job that, you know, a year and a half ago, or the kind of work a year and a half ago, you had said was like, in opposition with your spirituality, and you would never go back to doing again. And I could just see you making decisions in sort of a state of like a haze or like this not caring. And so I tried to really give you time and space and be gentle about it up until I saw that you were about to make another set of decisions that I didn't think you would easily be able to take back. And so we had a hard conversation and I <laughs> think you were probably upset with me for a little bit, but I was like, listen, I like, I really think something is wrong. And if you can't talk to me about it, you need to talk to someone about it. And, you know, to your credit, like you were upset briefly, but then you were like, you know what, you're right. And you, you made that appointment with the therapist, like within a couple of days of that conversation. And so now we're at a place where we're really coming full circle again, and we've done enough healing that we're actually starting to slip back into our original dynamic a little bit. And it's another power exchange back in the original direction. And me recognizing that you have healed to the point where it's okay I can lean on you a little bit again and I can give you that control back and I can relax and allow myself to be taken care of a little bit again when I need it. And, um, you know, that, that's been an adjustment, I think, for both of us, but also with the depression in the mix, like, and all the stress that's been going on. I mean, my libido has completely rebounded, but yours has been a little bit slower due to the cancer. And so um, when we started our relationship, our drive was very equal and mine is very high to begin with. So it's a little bit of a struggle. Sometimes I have to remind myself and I have to do self-work about, you know, you have a lot in your plate and you're doing healing and you're doing recovery and the fact that you're not interested as often as you used to be doesn't mean that you don't love me or you don't find me attractive or like I know these things logically, but I have to actively do some work within myself not to, you know, become insecure or to have like abandonment issues or self-esteem issues. I have to work on that myself because, you know, you're healing and it's just sometimes it's a matter of spoons and, you know, I feel like in the past couple of weeks, even we've really made a lot of progress. We've had um, some really fun kinky scenes and it's about sort of like setting expectations and 
one of the things that we decided to do was we kind of made a mutual agreement that instead of like at the start of the day, you know, if we were going to have an evening together, instead of like teasing me throughout the day and having this expectation that we were going to play and running the risk of getting to the end of the day and not having those spoons and not being able to do it and being let down that for a little while, we're going to focus on being present in the moment and saying, Hey, I'm really feeling excited. And I want to play right now in the moment when we have spoons instead of like building it up and sort of setting it up for disappointment. And I think that that's been really helpful because that feels really sexy when you're like, Hey, I'm feeling in the mood and I'm I'm feeling really excited because then it's like a fun surprise instead of, you know, waiting or hoping all day for something that might not happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think we're making those strides, but like you said, it's, I don't think it's ever fast enough to satisfy either one of us, but, uh, you know, relationships work because you do the work, right? And that's, you know, we're in that phase where we're doing the work and we've been doing the work, but the results are, are right around the corner, I think. Yeah. And I, and also just to emphasize that that's one small aspect of our relationship, you know, like our dynamic is now really healed, I think, and, um, and restored. And I feel like our, our DS and our relationship dynamic is in a very stable and healed place. And so that last little bit, like, you know, the fun, sexy times, it's something that we're working on, but I think we're making progress and yeah. So, I mean, so if you had to wrap this up with some words of wisdom, maybe for folks who are facing a crisis for the first time, be it with health or housing or something really big, and it's a challenge to their um, their relationship or their life or their dynamic, like what are your final words of wisdom to them? I think I would have two. One is that people will amaze you with how strong they are if you let them. You know, if you let them carry some of your burden. And the second thing is that if you have a relationship, that it's important to do the work and not walk away. That the rewards will always uh, outstrip the work that's required. Assuming it's a normal, healthy relationship, of course. You know, I think for me... It's about having a goal and keeping your mind on living in the moment while you can. And whether you're moving towards a goal of helping someone that you love to pass away with dignity, or whether that's you yourself, or whether the goal is recovery, positive attitude is so important. You know, remember to enjoy the moments that you can, find joy when you can. Remember to laugh a lot. Sometimes things are really dark, but something ridiculous will happen and like laugh until you can't laugh anymore because it's better than crying. And, you know, however much time you have with somebody that you care about, you know, finding joy in those little moments is so important. And also that even when a relationship, even when you're in a relationship where a dynamic is first or highly prioritized, being flexible is what's going to get you through. And sometimes taking on different roles, whether it's for a time limited amount of time, 
you know, or whatever, it doesn't mean that the dynamic is broken or damaged or that you can't go back to it. And if you discover new things that you love along the way and you decide you want to keep going with those changes in your dynamic, that's totally okay too. Communication is essential. Sometimes therapy can help. There are a million and one ways to have sex and discovering all of them can be a really fun journey. So if a challenge is in that department, you know, try to look at it as an opportunity to find new ways to fucking be intimate and to connect. And um, yeah, I mean, enjoy that process. Self-care is a thing. You can't care for others if you don't take care of yourself and you need to recharge your spoons. Family is important, whether it's biological or chosen. So, you know, I think at times we've both have to realize that this is a lesson we've both had to learn. You know, don't let stubbornness prevent you from accepting help from your pack when they offer it. And, you know, finally, sometimes a really tiny spark of hope can carry you for months or for miles or to places that you never thought you would go. And, Yeah, I mean, the most important thing is even if it seems like death is something that's imminent, you know, don't forget to live. Can we cry now? (laughs) Do we make it through? Can we cry now? Um, Yeah. So, yeah, I just want to thank Mac today for having this conversation with me. It's a really vulnerable thing to talk about in a public way and... Um, a lot of our story had to do with his personal, you know, health and well-being and body and other things that can be difficult to talk about. So I love you with my entire heart and you are the best daddy that any girl could ask for. And I'm excited to be on this adventure with you for however long it lasts. I love you too, baby girl. And you are amazing. Thanks as always for listening to Naughty Talk. Our show is available on most popular podcast platforms. For updates, to submit a request to be a guest on the show, to write in with questions for our hosts or request lifestyle advice, head over to the show's page at sunnyleemain.com. You'll also find information about my novels, including my Turn the Key series, which are dark erotica with themes of hypnosis, BDSM, and sometimes a little bit of magic. All books feature different kinks and are queer inclusive. I hope you've enjoyed the show and you join us again next time.